Um, I told her not to mention the football, so it wasn't me mentioning the football for you Evertonians. Um, sorry, but that's what you get. Um, we're in the middle of a series looking at the barriers that some people have coming to faith and the some barriers that Christians may have going deeper in their faith. And at the middle of this, we have to talk about the Bible. Do you remember that book that you were given when you were baptized and maybe you got really passionate about it at a youth group and then you moved to uni or you went away from youth group for whatever reason and then you stopped reading it for a little bit and then life just gets in the way and occasionally when life gets hectic, you dust it off quickly and say, Lord, please speak to me tonight, now, and then you quickly flip over the Bible. That book we need to talk about. The thing is, is I love this book. I love it at this particular moment in time. I'm kind of paid to study it, but my relationship with it is not straightforward. I didn't grow up reading it at all. I didn't grow up going to church whatsoever. But I could have told you about the story of Joseph because we sung the musical at school. I could have told you a little bit about the story of Moses because of Disney's Prince of Egypt. I even could have told you most about the narrative of the Christmas story because of carols that were familiar. But it wasn't until I watched the Mel Gibson directed The Passion of the Christ that I first was presented with the narrative of Jesus' death. And it was from that moment that I became hooked on finding out more about Jesus. So I dug out an old red te- uh, New Testament and Psalms that we'd been given by a charity called the Gideons who came in to an assembly at our school. And I started to read this uh, New Testament and Psalms from the beginning and work my way systematically through it to the end. And I became obsessed. I quickly devoured it very um, rapidly. I didn't even ask the question, why is the story repeated four times at the beginning of it? I was just so um, excited about finding out who Jesus was. But here's the kicker. My relationship with the Bible is always a measure of how in love with Jesus I am. I didn't first love the Bible and then Jesus followed that, right? Uh, It was the other way around. I think that's probably the same for most of us in this building, unless you are a historian or classicist or someone who pours over ancient manuscripts and you somehow manage to come across the Bible and you're like, wow, this is incredible. Probably most of us had an encounter with Jesus at some point and then the Bible followed. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, is the Bible really good? And if it is, then why do we struggle with consistency of passion or discipline around it if it can really change our lives? A survey that I read this week recently reported that fewer half of American Christians, 47%, say that the Bible is 100% accurate in all it teaches. 51% of that people group say that the Bible is written for each person to interpret as he or she chooses. And if that's that's from America, where there's still a lot more culturally acceptable and sometimes applauded to be a Christian, then these stats would be much, much lower for the UK, and believe me, they are. For example, in a YouGov survey recently, British people questioned, thought the storylines of The Hunger Games, Harry Potter, and The Da Vinci Code all came from Scripture. We live in a climate where the knowledge of this book is at an all-time low, And the desire to explore it is even lower. And so we have to start with this question. Why do we even read it in the first place? And the easiest and simplest answer for that is God says to. And so this is a very short preach. That's the end. Let's go home. But where does God say? Well, apart from a whole bunch of commands to ancient Israel in the Old Testament about reciting and remembering God's laws on a daily basis, commands not directed to us, but still instructive, the New Testament seems to think it's a pretty good idea too. 
Just to give one very quick example, Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, tells Timothy, who is an overseer of the church in Ephesus, that people should devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. So fair enough, God says to, but why does, he God say, why does he say to? I mean, God normally seems to have a reason for things. Why does he want us to read the Bible? Is it just because he wants the trouble of writing it and now wants the readership statistics to look good? No. Well, I'm sure God has better reasons than that. For a start, Paul tells us that it is useful. He says this, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So reading the Bible has a purpose. It teaches us what's right and corrects what we've got wrong. It trains our behavior and our character so that we can be the people that God intends us to be. And more than that, it's a weapon against the enemy. Paul goes on in in the book of Ephesians, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The Bible also teaches endurance and provides encouragement and gives us hope. And in Romans, it says this, for everything that is written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. So pretty good reasons. Having signed up to be part of the people of God, it's kind of our instruction manual of how to go about doing that. And it's a reminder of the great benefit to being the people of God and the great hope we have. But... And here's the real issue we need to get to. If it's so useful, if it's so foundational, if it's indeed our source of encouragement and hope, and I feel like a parent telling my kids to eat salad, if it's all those things, why do we find it so hard? And sometimes, why do we find it not that enjoyable? Now, I hope I'm not the only person feeling this. Most of you are like, are we all on the same page here? Are we all kind of, yeah, great. What's going on? Why do we find it so hard to engage with this thing that's clearly for our benefit? Is it laziness? Maybe. Is it business? Maybe. Is it Facebook and Instagram? Maybe. But I think that maybe we're reading it wrongly. Our approach to Scripture and our expectations of Scripture are flawed because of the way that we approach it. And at the risk of spoiling the punchline, a lot of the problem is that we forget that the Bible is first and foremost a grand narrative One big story about God and his people made up of a whole load of bunch of other little stories from different eras, different authors, different genres, but each of them in some way contributing to that overarching narrative that stretches from Eden to the New Jerusalem, from Genesis to Revelation. And often we forget to read the Bible as part of a big story, and in so doing we reduce it. We chop it up into isolated pieces. We turn this story into a book about law and then this story into a book about guidelines and this story into a book about facts. And we end up distorting the overarching narrative. And then we wonder why it's not doing its job. And so before we look at some positive ways of engaging with Scripture, let me tell you three less than helpful ways that I struggle with regularly, and so I hope we're on the same page, but, but it's often helpful to highlight them so we can see that actually they probably work against what the Bible is, supposed, is trying to do. And the first one is this. The Bible is not a rule book. Now some of you are like, what? But I thought it was like the Christian uh, version of those swimming rules that uh, you slap up on the side of a wall, like no heavy petting, no running, no dive bombing, that's that thing. And this first way um, stems from this popular view 
that the Bible is God's rule book. Like most people who don't go to church probably think that we gather, we sing some kind of ancient songs, and then we all talk about this divine rule book. Now, sure, it contains rules for living as God's people, but it is far more than that. It'd be like saying all our parents, all that parents are for is to tell us how to live. That's the, like, the only thing parents are for. Now, good parenting has a fair share of that involved, but also there's a lot more to parenting than simply telling kids how to do, what to do, and what not to do. And when it comes to the Bible, in fact, we get 50 chapters of Genesis and 19 chapters of Exodus before we get to a list of rules, of which I have put in stone up on the wall for your perusement this evening. But before we get to that, it's almost entirely story with only a handful of commands. Get busy, don't eat that fruit, put some clothes on, get out, get in the boat, pack your bags, you're headed to Canaan. That's it. The rest of it is just story. The Bible is far more story than rules. And most of the rules don't actually apply to us anymore. They are for Old Testament Israel to live out as part of the story of being the people of God. And to paraphrase Paul in the letter to the Galatians, we no longer live by a set of rules. We live by the law of Christ, which is the Holy Spirit living in us. The problem is, reading the Bible primarily as God's rule book, is that we forget the context of those rules. They're meant to be lived out as part of the big story of the God who graciously rescues his people. Not a list of seemingly arbitrary do's and don'ts from a distant parent figure, like having to comply with a tax code or building regulations or the hundreds of pages of terms and conditions on iTunes. We, when we view the Bible in that way, at least the legalism, and to the dynamic of authority and submission. It's not the delight that the Bible is supposed to be. At least according to the psalmist in Psalm 119, he says this, Praise be to you, Lord, teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes. As one who rejoices in great riches, I meditate on your precepts and I consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. They are not the words of someone who got really excited about some laws. But also this kind of attitude to the Bible gives rise to judgmentalism or a sense of superiority. If I manage to keep the laws, or at least the ones I pick and choose and um, choose to keep, the laws as I define them, then I can feel a sense of smugness. I can then look down on those who don't measure up, and that's what happened with the Pharisees in Jesus' day. When I became a Christian, I was 17, and we went away once a year to a thing called Soul Survivor, which is a big old festival for young people, and we went camping. There's about 10,000 young people, and we'd gather in a big tent and worship together, and there'd be someone giving some uh, talk, and we'd be prayed for. And I remember um, with me and my two mates, Danny and Andre, we got really passionate about the Bible around this time. And what we would do is, of an evening, um, during the big top gathering, we'd sit around our Bible and we'd flick the Bible open to any page and we'd say, God, we'll do whatever you ask us to. And so we like flicked open to a page and it would say something like, love your neighbor. And so we'd go around and we'd chat to people that we didn't know and um, be really nice. And then one night we flicked open and it came to a, a verse in Leviticus that says, there shall, no, there shall be no sewage left in the camp. And we were camping and the toilet situation is not very nice in Chapter Mallet in Somerset. And so we took that as a divine inspiration from the Lord to spend the next three hours tidying up as many toilets as we could find. I kid you not, I found a whole human poo in a shower. But I tidied that because the Lord told me. 
But I've taken it completely out of context, this random little verse found in Leviticus. But more than that, if we read the Bible as a rule book, it's a finite enterprise. There is a limited number of laws, which means there is an end to that enterprise. And at some point, you will get to know all the laws. Even if you can't keep them, you'll get to know them all. I mean, after you've been a Christian for a while, you're not supposed to get surprised by discovering a new law of the Lord. You're not going to come home one day from an early morning serial killing spree, wash the blood off your hands, sit down for your quiet time with the Lord, and suddenly read, Thou shalt not murder. If only the reason, if the only reason you read the Bible was to find out and be reminded of God's rules for living, at some point it's going to get a bit dry. You might be convicted every so often that you're not doing something you should be doing or vice versa, but it won't come to anything new. The sense of discovery and adventure has gone. The Bible, though it contains rules to follow, was never intended to be read primarily as a rule book. And the second, uh, the Bible is not, may come a bit close to home, and I'm sorry about this. But the Bible is also not a series of death calendar quotes. And the second unhelpful way of reading the Bible like this is to see it as kind of some source material for greeting cards or framed Instagram prints, to take one verse out of its context and set it to work to inspire us, to reassure us, or produce some other kind of warm, fuzzy feeling. And perhaps we can trace the blame for this method back to a guy called Stephanus, who in the year 1551 started to get tired of saying things like, oh, you know that bit in Galatians where Paul says whatever? And so he started adding verse numbers to every sentence or so. And it's so handy for referencing, isn't it? It's so handy for being able to open your Bible at a, at a given point. But it encourages us to see the Bible as a set of isolated sayings where each verse starts with a new line and so a new independent thought rather than part of a whole. And so the Bible gets broken up and treated almost like the whole book of Proverbs, a collection of wisdom rather than a grand narrative, a grand story. And so rather than memorizing stories or longer passages, people start to memorize just isolated verses, stripped of their context and making it all about me. And now what these verses, what verses do we typically choose for that special photo framing treatment? Not usually the ones about judgment and warning. I don't know if anyone has on their study or their room at home a Bible verse about discipline or persecution. Probably the ones we use are all about blessings and promises and feel-good verses and no longer blessings and promises in their context, but blessings and promises that were seen for everyone, for all the time and for probably me. And the classic one, I had to pick one out, and I'm sorry if this is like your favorite go-to memory verse, but you've got to pick one, haven't you? Um, and it is the most used one. It's Jeremiah 29, 11, right? And I've got one of these in my study at home that someone bought for me very kindly, and it's lovely word art. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Reassuring isn't it? Positive, isn't it? Gives us hope and confidence, doesn't it? Who doesn't want prosperity and security? The problem is, it's not written for you. And it wasn't written for me. It's not a general promise to all who hear it, like, for example, John 3.16 that says, whosoever believes in me. That's like a, a, a cosmic promise. This is a specific word to a specific people in a specific situation. It's a promise to the people of Israel who have been exiled to Babylon and facing the possibility of being completely wiped out as a race on planet Earth. And this internet meme 
highlights that, right? Remind me again about your time in the Babylonian exile. And to pick that out and say, oh, this verse is for me, or even that verse can be for me to not just exiled Israel, is to ignore several things. Not just the original context, but also the clear message given by Jesus for his followers not to expect prosperity in this age. Indeed, he says we should, be, we should expect to be harmed, for example. Mark 8, 34, who has this tattooed on their inner thigh. Then he called the crowd to them, along with his disciples. This is everyone. This isn't just the chosen few. Everyone, and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Or who has this one on their fridge? They will put you out of the synagogue, in fact. The time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. The problem is this method ignores the very real experience of many Christians who have been imprisoned or martyred over the centuries. And so why would it apply to us but not them? Now don't get me wrong, that verse and that whole passage does apply to us, but it applies to us because it's part of a big story that we're a part of. It's part of the history of the covenant-keeping God who cares for his people, and we are now part of that people. However, the promise that they would materially prosper and not be physically harmed was for a specific time in Israel's history. Even Israel couldn't apply that to themselves at all subsequent points in their history. And where that Jeremiah promise finds its completion is not in this age, but in the age to come where all God's people will indeed find rest and freedom from harm. And in that sense, it makes a great motivational poster quote. Okay, what's the harm of taking these verses if they inspire us, if they make us feel better or remember God? What's wrong with that? And the problem comes when bad stuff happens. When I claim a specific promise that wasn't meant for me, what happens when I do not prosper or when I am harmed? Do I get disillusioned and start to give up on God? Or do I go into denial and try to justify why God hasn't yet come good on that promise? Do we throw the entire Bible out because the verses that we claimed are now not coming to fruition? Whatever way, we probably end up getting disappointed with God. And more generally, it's like feeding on sugar or milk rather than solid food. Sure, it might taste good at the time, but if that's all you eat, if all you do is a verse a day, if all you do is the, the good positive Bible Instagram trend, whatever you do, then you're going to end up with type 2 spiritual diabetes. And so the third thing that the Bible is not is this. The Bible is not a puzzle to be solved. As well as Reading the Bible as a rule book or a collection of inspiring quotes, the third unhelpful way is this, reading the Bible as some kind of puzzle, almost like a kid emptying it all out on the, um, on the carpet and scrambling around trying to put the thing back together again. It's like we think that God has hidden some kind of mystical theology among the stories and poems and prophecies and letters in the Bible, and for us to kind of da Vinci code our way to finding out the, the theology that's going to solve it all. And to some extent, that process is a good thing. There is a consistent rationale behind how God acts from Genesis to Revelation. And if we look, we'll start to see that. And so but we come up with doctrines and we come up with formulas to explain the rationale of what we find in the Bible, whether it be two, two ways to live or four spiritual laws or the five points of Calvinism or the 39 articles or whatever. And some of these formulations can be quite helpful and useful in understanding how the Bible fits together and how to read some of the more difficult bits. But the problem is this, 
When the solved puzzle stops being an aid to reading and applying scripture and starts to replace it. When people get more excited about the type of theology camp that they sit in rather than the scriptures that inform it. When our theology framework becomes primary and scripture then gets squeezed into that theological framework. And when the solved puzzle replaces scripture, there are problems. Firstly, it makes more inclined to ignore or redefine the bits that don't fit our system or make us feel uncomfortable. Everything is read to kind of fit on our map. And so the Bible ceases to surprise us, ceases to challenge us and make us feel uncomfortable. We already know what it's going to say, even if it might not actually be saying that. And again, another story back to Danny and Andre when I first became a Christian. We used to meet up every fortnight for a sleepover. Um, and I wish when you're an adult you could still do sleepovers because they're all fun, aren't they? Um, although Danny had a leather sofa that I had to sleep on all the time and I'd wake up with my sweaty face stuck to the leather. It wasn't a nice experience. But the, one of the main reasons that we met up every fortnight is because we were convinced that the end of the world is coming soon. And um, we weren't part of a cult. It was, we just got really excited about the book of Revelation. And uh, we had come up with this idea through reading the book of Revelation and some other um, contributing bits of liter literature that Arnold Schwarzenegger was the Antichrist. Convinced. And we're, why are you laughing? And we were like mapping his uh, political moves. And uh, we were absolutely convinced that this is it. We need to pray our socks off. So we would meet 17-year-old boys. would meet once a fortnight to pray that the Antichrist would not raise his head and, and start the end of the world. <laughs> but what would happen is every time that Arnold Schwarzenegger would get like a new film or any time we'd read a new bit of uh, revelation or we would um, be like pouring through a little commentary or whatever, we would make it fit that framework. And then he got the role in a film called End of Days where he literally punches the devil in the face. And we were like, this is it. He's definitely, it was just making it fit our framework. And it also makes the Bible seem annoyingly obscure. It's like we need this middle thing for us to engage with the Bible. We need this bit of theology. We need this framework to engage with the Bible. And so we get so excited about this thing rather than just going straight to the source. Why didn't God just give us a systematic theology textbook instead or take us through doctrine point by point if that's what we need to come up with when we read it? And of course, once we've completed the puzzle, we don't really need to pay any attention to the individual pieces. The job's done. We're like, cool, I've got my theology sorted out. I don't need anything else. And so Bible reading becomes a bit boring. But the Bible is not a theology textbook. It might sometimes be puzzling, but it isn't a puzzle. God gave much of his word through story because story is far more powerful and layered and engaging than just dry theology. And believe me, I've got three theological degrees, I know. He could have just said things like, you know what, I'm not going to be like the other gods around who require child sacrifice. But instead we get this dramatic story of Abraham and Isaac, a raised knife and a last minute substitution. And it's not just in story. God does it through poetry and through letters. He did it through crazy Jewish symbolism with numbers and dragons and beasts. He spoke to us through outlandish actions of prophets like Hosea, who was told to forgive and reconcile with the prostitute, his wife. He spoke to us through the earthy parables of Jesus that announced the coming rule of God using farming stories. He spoke to us, not just by telling us, uh, point one, subsection A, I love you, but through the story of his becoming one of us and dying in our place. And you can't reduce that to a solved puzzle or a set of doctrinal statements, however delicately crafted. You can't ever say, I've got it all worked out. 
Theology is good. It's necessary. But good theology should just get you to a place where you realize you know so little, not that you've got it sorted. It's never meant to be more important than encountering the very word of God in all its richness and peculiarity and particularity. And so enough with the negative stuff. Don't treat the Bible as a rule book to follow or a collection of inspiring quotes or a theological puzzle to be solved. But how should we read it? I'm going to give you five ways. First, behavior. For our behavior, at the most basic level, we do read the Bible so that we know what to do how to act and behave as the people of God in a fallen world, but not as a rule book, not as a list of things to do if we want to stay in God's good books or feel superior to the rest of the world or to other Christians. In fact, most of the genuine rules in the Old Testament are for the nation of Israel, not us, which is how we can all sit here today wearing polycotton shirts and not stone people for adultery, in case you're wondering. But for us... They are part of the story, the story of what it meant to be God's people back then, that revelation of God's character. The Ten Commandments, again, that we have in stone up here on the wall, reveal much about who God is, just as much as they tell us what to do. And now as part of the New Testament people of God that we count ourselves amongst, with our Holy Spirit living in us to guide us, we're then motivated to live rightly. And so the Bible, with its stories and laws and proverbs and letters, show us what it means to live rightly. And a Jewish commentator said just this week that I was watching a video of, he said, Jew- Jewish people behave themselves, so they, get, they get their behavior sorted so they can get to know God. Whereas Christians know God, and then the behavior follows. Mostly by principles and examples that we see in Scripture, leaving us to work out how to live it out in our own time and culture. Which is why there's nothing about how to use the internet in the Bible, but we get to learn the the culture and we get to learn the principles and examples that we can then apply to our time and culture. You won't find anything about cryptocurrency mentioned in the Bible, but it'll tell you a lot about how to deal with finance and where to invest and that kind of thing, and you can start to work that as you learn more about the principles and examples that are laid out in the Bible. And as we saw earlier, if you've been a Christian for a little while, when it comes to situations where there's a right way and a wrong way, you probably know what God wants you to do 99% of the time. It's very rare that there's somewhere that's like, I'm completely bamboozled, I have no idea whatsoever. Mostly it's not that hard to know what to do. Obviously there's a small um, couple of situations where there's competing ethical principles behind it, I get it. But the difficult bit about being a Christian is actually being a Christian. It's actually doing the stuff. Or in my, in my, in my case, remembering to do the stuff. And so in terms of our behavior, most of our Bible reading won't be finding out new principles for how we should live, but it's about reminding ourselves regularly of what we already know and being challenged as to whether we're actually living by them or not. Whenever we read our Bibles, read with an eye, not merely to knowledge, but to behavior. Am I doing what it says? As Jesus' brother James writes, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And I'll let you into a little secret been to theology college twice, and there are a lot of unkind people studying theology. So you can study as much as possible and still be unkind. You can study the Bible and be super clever, super intellectual, and know know loads of stuff about the history of how the thing was formed, know all kinds of stuff, and still be quite an unkind person. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. And closely linked with behavior is the second reason we read the Bible, character. 
We read in order to align our character with God's. And character rubs off. You begin to act like the people you spend time with, don't you? Or read about or watch TV. Um, I know that when I personally watch a lot of snarky, cynical stand-up comedians, which is like one of my favorite genres of stand-up comedy, the problem is, as I become more snarky and cynical, and I start to wind up my wife and my kids with my retorts all the time. But if I watch inspiring things and feel-good dramas, then for all I know, something different might happen. I haven't really given it a go, to be honest. I don't watch much of that stuff. My point is, is character is contagious. If you hang out with Jesus by reading stories about him, then his character will start to rub off on you. The classic, what would Jesus do slogan, and accompanying merchandise, always available at any good Christian bookstore, is all about that, isn't it? Ask yourself, in this given situation, what would Jesus do? And now, from what we read in the Gospels, the answer would usually be, cure a spot of leprosy, teach some crowds, walk on a lake, and then go die for the sins of the world. And so you've got to make some allowances for his being the unique son of God. And this is why I think we're also given in the Bible, not just Jesus' example, but a whole bunch of non-divine examples to follow too. Like Paul, who famously said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Or the great cloud of witnesses referred to in Hebrews chapter 11. The heroes of faithfulness that we see in the Old Testament. If you spend time reading about these great examples, examples of flawed human beings, just like us, whom God encountered and transformed and used to do extraordinary things, it will inspire you to emulate a character. And that's probably more fundamental than behavior, because character always influences behavior. Who you are determines what you do. So instead of just reading your Bible and asking, what should I do in response to what I've just read, also ask, who should I be? Who can I become? And leading on from this, the third reason we read our Bibles is to know what goals to set. And now I don't mean like 10 top leadership goals to conquer the world, but I mean what direction is your life going in? What are you going to pursue in life? The diff it's different from behavior as we defined it earlier. Behavior is about right and wrong. Goals are about okay and better. Out of all the things I could do, what could I choose to do more of? And this will be different for each of us because God has made each one of us differently and called us to different tasks. Now, some of the big picture goals should be common to all Christians. Collectively, as the people of God, we've been given an overarching goal of going among all the nations and making disciples. And to do that, becoming like Paul says, all things to all people. But of course, each of us is going to work that out in a multitude of different ways. And the Bible, the Bible challenges us to ask these kinds of life-directing questions, like, how will I spend my time? How will I spend my money? How will I spend my retirement when it happens? Which people, group, or subculture will I become all things to? With the resources God has given me, with my time and my finance and the people that I belong to, where should I direct those resources so that I can bring him the glory? When you read your Bible, dare to ask yourself those kind of questions in response to the text. And beware, some texts can be particularly challenging if you do that. And this is where the Bible, as kind of motivational quote approach, can actually work against our spiritual growth. If we focus simply on reading and claiming some isolated promises and beliefs, how does that inform our goals? Because we chase these promises and blessings, right? And out of context, we often do so in terms of this world and this age. But the big story of the Bible leads us in the opposite direction. 
The big story of the Bible is all about denial of personal satisfaction in this age in light of what God is doing in this age to bring about the age to come. The big story is of a God who gave up his status, gave up his power, gave up his comfort to suffer alongside us and to die for us. And we're called to set life goals that make sense of that story, not our own individual quest for greatness. If that was the case, then I'd definitely be in the NBA right now. Definitely. But more fundamental than goals or character or behavior is this fourth reason that we read the Bible. We read to inform our worldview. And I think this is one of the most important things of, of our generation, where we're seeing so many people like publicly, um, uh, what's the word, deconstruct their faith super publicly. And it's partly down to this, is we, we should read the Bible to inform our worldview rather than applying our worldview to the Bible and saying, fit with this, instead of letting the Bible shape our worldview. We read that, so that we should see the world the way God sees it, not expecting the Bible to um, fit into our um, very particular, very Western, very British mindset. Because once you see the world how God sees it, the other things follow how you behave, who you are, where you're heading. Worldview, I think, is the primary driver in how God transforms his people, which is why Elisha prayed for God to open his servant's eyes to see God's heavenly army on the hills so that he was suddenly filled with courage to take on the battle he was about to. It's why Paul prays that we would have our eyes of our hearts be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which he has been called, we have been called, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And it's why God in the book of Revelation invites John to come through a door in the heavens in Revelation to see the world how he sees it. It's fundamental to what we do in church each week and in small Bible study groups. The writer to the Hebrew says this, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as, the day as you see the day approaching. And he says, Paul also writes in Colossians, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Why? Because it's how we reinforce our worldview. It's how we continue to remind ourselves of how God sees things when for the rest of the week, the world is the major voice that we hear. It's how we remind ourselves that we're part of a big story, a story that began with a hairy desert dweller named Abraham and, and continues by way of Jesus into the story of the new creation God has begun in us and one day will carry on to completion in the whole world. And incidentally, I think, this is why some people think they can be kind of solo Christians outside of the church. It's because they've missed the whole story of the Bible. It's not about individuals being saved, and that's it. It's about individuals being saved so that they can be part of the people of God from now and in the age to come. And we read the Bible primarily to be reminded time and time again of how God sees us, of how God sees the world. In my final year of studying to be a vicar, it was not only the culmination of three years of academic study, 
But behind closed doors, it was also the culmination of three years of a police investigation where I was the primary witness, as I had told the police four years previous that I had been a victim of abuse uh, between the age of 10 and 14 um, from, uh, at the hands of a close family friend. And so I had to go to Chichester Crown Court and I had to speak in front of a jury and face the man uh, for the first time in over 15 years. And the stress that I felt in that week was palpable. The anxiety was painful, and I doubted nearly every move that I was making. And yet, next to our Airbnb in Chichester was the cathedral. And every night they had this service called Evensong that happens still to this day in quite traditional churches, where um, they simply have a choir and they'll just sing psalms from the book of Psalms, um, and, and then you kind of hand the day over to God. And that experience... Hearing the words of the psalmist go through that whole spectrum of human emotion from carnal rage and disappointment to feelings of lostness and helplessness towards joy and celebration without avoiding the very existence of pain helped me in that moment to be seen, to feel held and known that week as the Bible was shaping how I saw myself and the presence of God in that situation. Let's allow the Bible to shape our worldview. And yet I think there is one more reason, possibly even more basic, more primal than worldview. I want you quickly just to think way back to the beginning of your life. How far can you remember? Who can remember like three years old? Anyone remember being three? Being one uh, wicked? Four? Five? Okay, six? Seven? Thirteen? Okay, cool, cool. Um, most people don't remember anything that happens to them before the age of two, right? Most people. Um, which, as a parent, makes me wonder, why even bother? Uh, why do you bother feeding and changing and bathing and going to the park and pretending you can't see them and then we go, beep, um, and reading the same story over and over and over and over again if none of it gets remembered? So why do it? Why not just take it easy for a couple of years and then start to be nice when they're ready to remember the things that you're doing for them? We don't do that, of course, because we know that our relationship with our kids is built on more than just the things they can remember. While the memory of the events may vanish, the bonds of trust that are built endure. They might not remember precisely what I've done for them or what Laura has done for them or their family and friends around them, but they remember that they can trust them and they can trust that the people around them will look after them and support them and be kind to them and love them. They remember that like us, even if they can't tell you why, they remember this connection that is made even if the content has faded. Each week we come to church to hear God's story. Each day or every other day or maybe one other time in the week, we might open our Bibles to read some small part of it and we're reminded of who he is of what he's done for us in Christ, of, of how this means that our story can now find its place within his big story. It anchors our existence and gives our life meaning within a much bigger framework. It reminds us of who we are in light of who he is, just like Israel regularly gathered to recite God's story. And now over time, we might forget the content of each sermon, obviously not mine, we might not remember what we read last night as our eyes get heavy as we drifted off to sleep, our attitudes and behavior might be transformed incrementally. But each day, each week, we build the connection as we hang out with God in his story. 
Even though we might not be fully conscious of what's going on, we're enjoying the feeling of sitting on our Heavenly Father's knee and having the same story read to us over and over and over again. It's that feeling of connection that builds the bonds of trust and affection and love. And does it mean that behavior isn't important then? Well, of course not nor character or goals, even worldview. But when we trust and love God as our Father, we're more likely to do the things that pleases Him and to be more like Him and to pursue His purposes in our lives and see the world around us through our Father's eyes. And that's why we read our Bibles. It's like story time with God. In Hosea, the prophet writes this, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son, but the more they were called, the more they went away from me. But, I, but it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like the one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. My people are determined to turn from me. Yet how can I give up on you, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows from Assyria, fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. About five years ago, my relationship with the Bible had definitely drifted. I was reading it purely as a transaction. I was a professional Christian. I was paid to be a Christian. I was paid to study the Bible. If I had a preach to write, I'd read it. If I had an essay to complete, I'd read it. If I had a Bible study to plan, I would read it. Uh, the The Bible became like a textbook or a historical source that I was drawing from simply to fuel my ministry. And whilst I would say any reading is better than no reading, I was missing the point fundamentally. I was forgetting that ultimately the Bible is an invitation into the knowing the more, more of God, more of the power of the Spirit, more of the person of Jesus. It is living and breathing and a speaking truth to each situation. Also, many people in the world live in countries where to even own one of these holds a life sentence. And yet I had a smorgasbord of translations in my home. I didn't see it at the moment as a total privilege. And then I stumbled across a podcast that uncovered some of like the Jewish roots of the Old Testament, and it felt um, like I was falling in love with the Bible all over again, seeing it through a completely fresh lens. Because the thing is, is even if you're paid to study it, it's still a relationship we hold. And like all relationships, if you went on the same date every single time you went on a date with someone, things would get very stale very quickly. If things have gotten stale for you with your reading of Scripture... Mix it up. Maybe try listening to it. Maybe try reading a commentary. Maybe read it in a three. We call those trios here. But maybe follow a plan. Maybe try a different version. Do what you can for it to stay fresh. And remember that every time you pick up this book, you're inviting the God of the cosmos to break into your life and speak to you afresh, to change your point of view and move you from glory to glory as you grow into the likeness of Jesus. We need it in our time more than ever before. Lord, move us to be excited and encouraged and infused by your words. Be people who are shaped by your words. Be a a church that is shaped by your worldview and not our own. Shall we pray? Let's stand.